So Genesis 45, Genesis 45. And uh, let me go ahead and throw this up here. This is where we've been, where we're going. I've stolen this from Vody Bauckham's book on Joseph. It's a helpful book. Uh, he takes um, a really, I think, a helpful approach to Joseph that we've just not been able to explore much, covenant land and stuff like that. But um, I find this a, a helpful way to sort of simplify the story because the, the story comes to a halt, right? Because everything's been moving fast for Joseph. And it comes to a halt with all this uh, Joseph sees his brothers, he sends them back, they come back, right? And all this sort of drama stuff. It's like a CW show or something. And, um, but what we need to see, big picture, what's happening. What's slowly happening is the reconciliation between enemies. Uh, remember that Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. And Genesis has the constant story arc of brother against brother. And now this is going to culminate uh, here uh, when, whenever they, they all leave, as we'll see, and it'll connect all the way back to Genesis 10. But, um, so this is where we're at. We've, we've seen the process of examination and transformation, uh, and here we see revelations where Joseph is going to reveal himself to his brothers, and that is eventually revealed to Jacob. Now, we're cover a lot, so, so we, we, we can't uh, read every word of it, but let's start here in verse 1 of chapter 45. This is where Joseph reveals himself. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So this is, this is what, what we've been waiting for, right? For Joseph to reveal uh, who he is to his brothers. Now, he's been giving some weird hints at this, right? You remember that, that last week we saw when, when he sat down at the dinner table with them, he organized them from the oldest to the youngest. And, and the question is, how does this guy, because they don't know it's Joseph, how does this guy know our ages, right? And, and, he, and he's, he gets really emotional, particularly when, when he first meets Benjamin, and then he gives Benjamin extra food. Like, there's been all these weird things. And, and now he, he can't take it no more, right? Uh, he, he, he's, he's coming out of the closet, if you will, if I can borrow that phrase that's been ruined. And he just comes out and he, he reveals himself of who he really is. And now remember, these brothers haven't seen him since he was a young pup. Now he's a grown man and he looks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. And, and so he has shaved his head. He has no beard. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He speaks Egyptian. Um, and now he, he has to, to, to reveal himself. Um, one of the things that gives it away is that, yeah, he can say, hey, guys, surprise, I'm Joseph. But what really gives it away is he starts to speak Hebrew. Remember, we've, we've talked some about the racial conflict between the Egyptian and Hebrews. It's in the narrative, right? Remember, the Potiphar's wife will say, that Hebrew did this to me. There's been a lot of this racial tension. Remember that uh, Joseph isn't allowed to eat with the Hebrews because he's viewed as an Egyptian. There's this, this real division. So when this Egyptian claims to be a Hebrew and then speaks the language, that seems to seal the deal. Uh, this, this guy really is uh, one, one of us. And so... Um, the word there, dismayed, in verse 3, uh, you may have a, a different word. Um, it means to be anxious, afraid, or to be terrified. The idea is that they are stunned, they are alarmed, and, and they never could have imagined 
this great powerful man, the vizier of Egypt, is indeed the, uh, their, their little uh, punk brother, right, that they try to get rid of. Would have never have, have imagined that. What I find interesting is, is his first act after he reveals himself is to inquire of his father. His father didn't do this. And, and, and you can understand why so beloved of his father, and he loves his father, he wants to see him again. But given the time span, he's thinking of, of Jacob's age. Maybe his father's already gone, and that would be an extra dagger. You remember, he, he sent them off to bring Benjamin back, and, 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 and he, he's wanting the whole family to come, right? And now there's some irony here. This is a complete reversal of how the story started. In Genesis 37, Joseph is the weak man, and the brothers are strong. And so they use their power to exile Joseph. Joseph now is the strong man and the brothers are weak. And he uses that power to show mercy. He has the power, and you could even say the right, maybe even be justified, to throw these men into prison, to throw them into a pit. Remember, in the story, pit and prison are interchangeable. He can turn them into slaves if he wants to. Instead, he chooses mercy. Now, the brothers, you know, they're, they're still just, just flabbergasted. So in verse four, he repeats uh, it again, uh, where he says, uh, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sowed into Egypt. I love that detail because we know that, right? But if you go back and read the interaction between the brothers and Joseph since, since they arrived in Egypt, they never mentioned that to Joseph. So remember, Joseph would inquire and say, well, tell me about your family. They say, well, there, there's uh, 12 of us, right? Um, there's 10 of us here. One of our brothers, our youngest, is back home with our father, and one is not. That's how they would put it, right? They never said, well, we do have another brother. We think he's dead because we sort of like sold him to the Egyptians through the Ishmaelites, right? They always left that part out. And so what Joseph does is he cuts through it all. He says, look, you guys still don't believe me? Let me say it in Hebrew again. I am Joseph. You know, the guy you sold into slavery. Mike dropped, right? I mean, this, this is the scene that we all want, right? I mean, he's just like, boom, right? You never expected that. And, and uh, so, so given that detail, it is, it is no doubt um, they... They know that this is Joseph. Now, I want you to notice what Joseph does is Joseph takes on the role of Noah. Look at the text, verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there would neither be plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant of, of the earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father of the Pharaoh, Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Let me add just a quick note there. At the end of verse 8, a father of the Pharaoh, ruler of the house. That language is used in, uh, in Egypt at this time to describe the vizier. Again, I believe that the stories of Joseph and Moses and all that was written by someone familiar with Egyptian culture. Here's an example of that. The vizier was often called a father of the Pharaoh. And that title, Joseph uses it for himself. Well, that makes sense, right? We wouldn't say that about the chief of staff of the president of the United States. No one's ever called him that. Or the vice president. No one's ever called him or that. But you would call the vizier of Egypt that. And here's just more evidence that 
its original composition had an Egyptian origin in it. And I think it's Moses growing up in Egypt, but nevertheless. Um, but his theology is interesting. You see the Noah reference? What's Noah? Is that God prepared Noah to preserve life from judgments. There it came by means of water. Joseph, in a similar light, is, is, is saying, God sent me ahead of you to make preparations to save life. Now, for Noah, it was to save mankind. But with Joseph, it is to save the, rem- the, the, the people of God. And you'll notice that Joseph's sufferings have drawn him closer to a deeper relationship with God. For many people, it's to run away from him. His theology is quite profound. Now, in saying God did this, right, he's not absolving them of wickedness. He is saying that you could not stop the plan of God, even your own wickedness and evil. God is Lord over that, and he will bring humanity's evil for his glorious good. If you need more evidence of that, I would point you to the cross. Man's climactic evil was used by God for his glorious good. It doesn't mitigate the evil. Still evil, still wrong, still unjust, and judgment should be rendered. But God took that and turned it into his glorious good. Um, now, uh, go down to, uh, uh, in verse 9, he, he, he tells them, go back and, and get my father, bring Jacob with you. And I want, I want to notice there in verse 9, he gives both a positive and negative command. Uh, hurry and go, that's the positive. The negative command is don't tarry, right? This is for emphasis in Hebrew. But verse 10 is, is worth looking at. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. Now, I find this language interesting. One, Goshen we know, the ancient city of Avaris, right? So the city goes by different names, right? So it's, it's Avaris, it's called Avaris under the Hyksos, and then later it's Goshen or the land of Ramses and Goshen. I don't know, I don't know the whole order. But we, we know where this land is. You can go there right now, right? It is a pastoral uh, land designed for shepherds. You can go there now. In fact, I believe it was the capital of the Hyksos. So dating Joseph and Moses is a huge, huge controversy. Some say that Joseph was under the rule of the Hyksos. Some say he was before, after, I don't know. For those who don't know, the Hyksos was a group of Asiatics who took over Egypt, basically, for like 100, 200 years, something like that. And, and I don't think Joseph was associated with him. I think he came before. But nevertheless, he is sending them to prime real estates. All right, so, so a place, uh, so if you're a, if you're a corn farmer, you want Joseph to send you to Kansas. That's what I'm trying to say, right? Uh, if, if, you, if, if you raise horses, Joseph sending you to Kentucky, right? Um, you know, this, this is what he's doing. So what we need to see is that amid a drought, the people of God dwell in pasture land. What does that sound like? It's the pattern of Genesis. God takes wilderness and he turns it into an oasis. We've, we looked at all these examples. Remember that when Hagar is sent away from Abraham, an Egyptian slave sent away by Canaanites or, or sent by Israelites. Later, um, the Egyptians will enslave the Israelites, okay? Well, anyway, so Hagar goes off. And you remember, she puts her baby under a bush in a shade. And she goes off in the distance where she can't hardly hear him because they're both going to die. And you remember what God does? He opens her eyes to see a literal oasis. 
That's the story of creation. Genesis 1-2, what you have is chaotic waters, all that sort of stuff. What does God do? He creates out of that. And what does he put in the middle of that wilderness? A garden. This is the story of Genesis. So here you have a great famine in the promised land. Now before, Isaac would still find water in the promised land. Now he is calling them out of the promised land into Egypt temporarily, by which he will give them an oasis amid the, the, the famine. This is the story arc of, of Genesis, and it's, it's wonderful. Um, by the way, that language, your children's children, that is covenantal language in the Bible, among other things. Um, it, it is to remind, it is for one to say, tell this story from generation to generation, but it's also to say, God will keep his promises beyond your existence. Let me give you just two examples of this. Uh, Psalm 103 the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, his righteousness to children's children, right? This is an ongoing promise. Uh, Ezekiel 37, I took a lot of these out. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children, their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, be prince over them. This is the Davidic and Abrahamic covenant in a single verse. Right. So you, you see here, this begins with Joseph, uh, given the promise of... Goshen to, to them. Um, well, he continues to plead with them to go get Jacob. He uh, falls on his brother's neck, uh, Benjamin. That is uh, the same language is used of Esau with Jacob, the falling on the neck. This is, this is an act of, 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 of genuine just love and compassion and rejoicing, right? You see someone you haven't seen forever, right? Like, like there's, 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 there's the bro thing, right? Boom. But, but this is more of a, uh, uh, I've missed you, I've loved you, it's to fall on someone's neck. Uh, so this is twice we've seen brothers do this. So starting in verse 16, the, the brothers return to Canaan to, to retrieve their father. Before that, Pharaoh gets involved. And Pharaoh is excited. And because uh, word gets around as it does that Joseph's family has come over. Um, and I wanna look at verse 18. Notice what Pharaoh says. Um, so after he says, load up your beasts, all that, and, and come to Egypt, take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. So you notice he doesn't mention Goshen, but we are to associate Joseph's description of Joseph or of, of Goshen and Pharaoh's description, description of Goshen and put them together. It's Eden. Right? So, so it's, you'll eat the fat of the land, but Joseph just told us there is no harvesting. There's no plowing. It is so dry. The famine is so severe, no one's farming. We have no food. And, and, and Pharaoh comes and says, I'll give you the fat of the land. Well, there is no fat of the land, except in Goshen. It's a new garden of Eden and is given to, 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 to the people of God. So in, starting in verse 21 and going into verse 22, Pharaoh and Joseph, so they're kind of together here. Uh, they supply the brothers for their trip, right? So, so they're going to go back to Canaan, and they're going to move to Egypt, right? So they're going to leave everything behind. They're going to leave the promised land. And in verse 21, they're given wagons. Uh, then they're given provisions. And then and in verse 22, they change, they're given a change of clothes, now, by now, that should jump off the page, shouldn't it? I bet before we started the study, uh, Joseph, again, with fresh eyes, we thought Joseph got the coat of many colors. After that, it's never mentioned again. That's all over the place, changing clothes. When Joseph is, is uh, 
Um, when he flees Potiphar, what ha- Potiphar's wife, what happens? She rips off his robe and that is used as evidence against him. When he's in prison and brought before Pharaoh, what happens? He is given new clothes and he's shaved and everything else. And here, once again, what is we see? Clothes are associated with the story of, of, of him. Now, I think, and we've talked about this, clothes in the Bible often are associated with grace and transformation. Let me give you two passages of this. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, Zechariah 3. We can't look at the whole chapter, though I wish. So you remember that in Zechariah 3 is a vision of Joshua, the high priest who represents Israel, is covered in excrements on the day of atonement, in the presence of God, covered in human excrement. That's terrible, okay? It's unfathomable in the, in the Jewish mind. And what is, what is the angel of the Lord who I think is Jesus? The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. To him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. So the filthy garments are a picture of iniquity, sin. And I will clothe you with pure vestments, righteousness, right? It's just a picture of grace. And I said, this is Zachariah, because he gets really excited. Let them put a clean turban on his head. Now, that turban is, that's foreign to us. We don't wear turbans. But the ancient Jews, when the high priest would go in, he would have a a clean turban on his head. It couldn't be made of cotton because cotton attracts sweat and it attracts dirt, right? But it would say on there, holy unto the Lord, so Zacharias says, you're missing something. He's now holy. He's declared holy by God. Put that clean turban on his head um, and clothe him with garments. And, and, and the angel of the Lord did that. So you see that the role that new clothes plays in the Bible. Uh, let me give you one more example. This is Revelation, right? So this is the altar of the martyrs. Uh, uh, so um, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, the martyrs. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. We've talked about this, that it's contradictory. If pick any item of clothing and dip it in blood, is it clean or dirty? Moms, right? It's dirty. But in apocalyptic imagery, it makes complete sense because all that's symbolic. They are washed in the blood of the lamb. We sing it. But you see that clothes are associated with cleansing, transformation, grace. Grace by the means of the cross. Uh, I think you have something like that going on here. It's subtle, but when you put the whole Bible together, I think we can make that connection. One last thing that Pharaoh gives these brothers is money. Let me be clear. He gives Benjamin money, right? Now, there's some irony here. Now, irony is not the right word. You remember Joseph gave Benjamin the silver cup and it was used as a tool of testing. Now it's a means of grace, of lavish grace from Pharaoh, and it's given to to Benjamin. Well, so they go off, and uh, Joseph leaves them with a final exhortation there in verse 24. I think this is great. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Is that what y'all have, quarrel? You got anything different? Trouble. Trouble, okay, okay, I, I like that, that'll work. This is a Hebrew word that has a wide range of meanings, and I think that's on purpose. The word could mean argumentative, quarrel. And knowing what we know about these brothers, not to mention all the brothers in Genesis, that's sort of an important thing to say, right? Your parents ever do that when you went on long trips? When you went to go to grandma's house for Thanksgiving? Now, kids, you're going to be on your best behavior. I ain't going to put up with it, Right? Or what about, did your parents ever come out of the choir during church? Mine did, right? In fact, mom, 
mom got out of the choir. The choir was right behind the, the, the pastor at my original church when I was a little, little boy. And so I have vague memories of it. Right, right behind the pulpit, like, like, like here. And uh, mom would do the, the dagger look. You know what I'm talking You know what I'm talking about. And eventually, I don't know what we did, but we did something. And she, she came out, right, middle sermon, did that sort of thing. And we marched right behind her like obedient children. We knew we, knew we were about to get whooped, right? I mean whooped. Not a whooping, but whooped. And the pastor stopped middle sermon and says, let's pray for those three kids. You know, <laughs> that is a true story. That is a true story. Um, and and uh, so, so it could be that, right? That, that these brothers, they're just going to. But it also can mean tremble or quake. The idea is that Joseph is encouraging his brothers not to be afraid. They are under Pharaoh's protection. As God took care of Joseph, so he will take care of his people. I think that works too. And it could be a little bit of both. Stop your fighting. God's got this. If only I can think of a good application. Well, the boys get back to Canaan, right? And they, they think they've got good news, right? Hey, Dad, guess what? A little Joe's alive. And Jacob's response is surprising. Look at verse 26. They told him Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over the land of Egypt. Here's Jacob. His heart was numb. Anyone got cold? His heart was cold. Stood still. Stood still. I, I, like, I like that. I, I kind of like that better than numb. But you, you get the idea there, right? Stood still, numb, cold. The, he, he, he's, he's speechless. Um, but notice his, his response is rooted in his inability to trust his sons. He's ignorant of the fact that his, his sons sold Joseph in the slave. He didn't know that at all. But what he does know is that while Joseph was with his sons, he got killed. He don't trust his, 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 his sons. Not to mention they have wiped out an entire village, the Shechemites, and a whole lot of other stuff. What about Judah and the stuff with his daughter-in-law? He's got reasons not to trust him. And remember, forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Reconciliation is not the same thing as trust. Jacob does not trust his boys. So they come home and say, hey, dad, guess what? Oh, Joe's in Egypt. Let's go. You're going to say, ah. No, I, 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 I don't. For first of all, I don't find that appropriate. You don't need to bring up the fact that I had a son murdered by wild beasts. And you're going to use that against me to leave the promised land. You can kind of understand why he's so numb, why he's cold. Well, um, he is then given all the evidence. Verse 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him. The spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. There's a lot going on here. Real quick, the word in verse 27, revived, that he was revived, is the word alive. It's used a million times in the Old Testament. Here's like one of the first references, Genesis 5.3. Adam lived 130 years, right? And it's used there in verse 28 that, that when he says, my son is now alive. My son lives. So what he's saying is the news brings him out of Sheol. This has been the problem with Jacob, right? When he first found out about Joseph, he responds is, um, I, I feel like I'm in the grave with him. And then when he refused to let Benjamin go, it was, if you take Benjamin, something happens to me, uh, I will, I will, I'll be in Sheol in the grave, right? So his story has always been, I'm practically dead emotionally here as, as a result. Now he's saying, I'm out of that. My son is, is, is alive. It's the type of resurrection. 
Um, and so he is now in a hurry for the first time, right? He's in a hurry to, he's not gonna wait seven years like he did with Rachel and Leah. No, he, he's gonna go right now because he also realizes that he is about to die. And, and as we'll see, I think, I think next week. So, so starting chapter 47, Israel or Jacob uh, moves to Egypt. Um, I wanna point this out, um, 40, 46 verse one. Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God of his father, Isaac. Verse four, or verse five rather, mentions Beersheba again. That's significant because Beersheba was a important place in the story of Isaac. God appeared to Isaac here and Isaac built an altar to God there. This is Jacob's father. So it's very likely that as he sets out to see his son again, to move out of the promised land, he probably goes to his father's altar, the altar his father built. And here he worships. And I want you to notice that God speaks to him in verse two. It's been a while since we've seen something like this happen to the patriarchs. Verse two, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, this is such an important scene. God is assuring Jacob that all of his promises remain. I mean, think about what Jacob's doing here is he is leaving behind the promises of God, land. And he's taking his lineage with him. The Abrahamic promise he's walking away from, so it seems. So God comes and assures him that I am, I am protecting you, I am preserving you, but you gotta go to Egypt. Egypt is like the ark. Eventually, the people will return to the promised land. But you gotta go to Egypt first. And, um, and I want you to notice verse four. God says he himself is going down into Egypt. Now, we are short on time, but we have spent quite a bit of time on this theme, haven't we? And the story of Joseph is one of exile and exaltation. Joseph goes down into the pit. He goes down into Egypt. He goes down into prison, only to be exalted at the right hand of Pharaoh. That's the story of Jesus. The one who goes down into the earth in in the form of flesh, the incarnation, to go down into the grave, only to be exalted at the right hand throne of the Father. And here what we see is God himself is going down into Egypt. I mean, you you can see the Christological connection there. And he's assuring Jacob, wherever you go, I'm with you. Why isn't that encouraging? That I'm not bound like the ancient gods were. I'm not bound to land. I'm everywhere. I'm the creator. Remember in the ancient world, a land was tied to a deity. So when nations went to war, their gods went to war. So if you, gain, if you gain ground, that means the gods won those battles. If you lost ground, the gods won that, that, that land. But the land is tied to deities. And so Jacob knows that when I leave this land, I'm leaving behind the presence of God. And he's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm the sort of God that goes down into the pit. I'm the sort of God that goes down into Egypt. Now with that, does this help us understand the slavery experience? God has, has had always been with his people. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, to, to, to see? Anyway, so, um, so they, they, they pack their U-Hauls, right? 
and, and they, this tribe of shepherds, they moved to Egypt. Verse seven mentions his daughters. We only have the name of one, it's Dinah. She's the one that is assaulted by the Shechemites. Uh, it, this could be a reference to other daughters just not named or to daughters-in-law, both could work. Um, verse seven says, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Remember that Genesis ends on a cliffhanger. Um, nothing is resolved. The point of Genesis is how did the people of Israel, how did God fulfill his promises to Abraham? He doesn't in Genesis. He contradicts them. He gets them out of the promised land, right? The first guy to get a, a good mess of kids in the promised land, you're like, hey, look, God's keeping his promises. Yeah, we're gonna move you off stage left, right? So Genesis ends with a cliffhanger. How, how are they gonna get out of Egypt into the promised land? Well, that's a story that takes four books. Actually, five if you had Joshua, right? So, so that cliffhanger is important. This is the beginning of it. Also, you need to note that the seed story is important in Genesis, Going all the way back to Genesis 3, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. And so the story of Genesis has been genealogical. He had a son who had a son, had a son, had a son. Now what we see is the offspring, the seed of Jacob, is leaving the land of promise to go into the land of Gentiles. Right? And so we're seeing this conflict. We know what's about to happen. The sons of Sham are going to go to war with the sons of Ham. We know what's going to happen. And it will come in the form of slavery, right? So that battle is still going on. Verses 8 to 27 is a genealogy. We are not going to explore it. You're welcome. We've looked at all the genealogies in detail so far. I'm saving you trouble. However, I want to look at verse 8, 46 verse 8. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, okay? Now, that is repeated in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob, who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. You see the connection? Now, remember this. We're gonna come right back to it in a minute. We are to see the story of the Exodus in Joseph. And this is clear textual evidence of that, okay? The writer wants us to, to see this connection. Now, the difference is, this is the beginning of their journey. In Exodus 1, it's the end of their journey in Exodus. But it has the same uh, literary marker to to, to alert us to this. So here's the list, in case you, you care about this stuff. Uh, the, uh, con those connected with Leah, so this would be Leah, Leah's grandkids and all that. Um, uh, 33, and then you can see it totals 70. Now, how well do you know your Bible? We're gonna find out. Why is 70 important? Give me a theological reason, a textual reason. What's the theological reason? That number 70, why is that important? 70 weeks, yeah, yeah, so that'll come with Daniel. The number seven and the number 10, because 70 is seven times 10, for those of you who went public school in Owen County, right? Seven is the number of completion, 10 is the number of completion. You put them together, boom, number of completion. It's like the number 77, that helps, okay? So 70 is important. You're gonna later get the 70 weeks and all that sort of stuff, because that number keeps popping up in the Bible. At the same time, if, if we had time, we go back to Genesis 10. If we did the math, and we did this a long time ago, like 40 years ago. Um, how many nations are named in Genesis 10? It's the table of nations. It's right before Babel. 70 nations. I don't think that's an accident. So before Babel, there are 70 nations, and they're supposed to spread among the earth. And now... In the Bible, there are more than 70 nations, but what dominate the Bible are these 70. 
right? So you're going to get the Egyptians, the Israelites, and, and you know, everyone, the Canaanites and, and all that sort of stuff. We can go back and, and find that study. So, so we begin with 70 that ends with Babel where everyone's dispersed, divisions among the people. Now what it is we have is 70 people in a nation. So what we're getting a hint at is God is zeroing in on this people group. God is gonna work through them and they will be the light of God among the 70 nations. It's the 70 among the 70. I find that cool. You do with that whatever you want. Maybe, maybe you don't find it as cool as I did. If, if you want to see some other details, verse 10, Simeon had a son of a Canaanite woman. Um, ironically, remember, he's the one that wiped out the Shechemites, Canaanites, for sleeping with his, his sister, raping his sister. So he killed a bunch of Canaanites and ended up marrying one. Men, I'll tell you. Ur and Onan in verse 12 were killed in Canaan. Remember that weird story with Judah? Um, Rachel, in verse 19, is identified as Jacob's wife. She's the only one to get that title. What a mess that all that, that stuff is. Just absolute mess. Um, okay, so a couple of final thoughts um, we'll call it a night. First of all, I mentioned this, is the story of Joseph parallels the story of the Exodus. And this is on purpose. The same God that sent the people of Israel into slavery is the same God that brings them out. So let me show you the parallels. Okay, let's start here. Um, I'm stealing this from, I think, Vodi Bakum. I think that are one of the commentaries. Um, Permission. So J is Joseph, M is Moses. That was just an easy marker for me. I just copy and paste my notes. So Joseph is granted... uh, Permission is granted to Joseph by Pharaoh, right? Okay. So Moses, Pharaoh uh, reluctantly grants permission to Moses to go to the promised land, right? So Joseph and and the boys, they're here in Egypt. Pharaoh gives permission, go to the promised land, get your father. Moses says, hey, we want to go into the wilderness to worship our God. And Pharaoh says, not on my watch, right? So you see the parallels. There there are differences, parallels. Um, The representative, Joseph is said to be the head of the household. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house. Interesting. Um, The intercession uh, with Joseph, God gave uh, him favor and softened Pharaoh's heart. With Moses, God hardens Pharaoh's hearts and has to send him plagues. By the way, um, I don't don't know if I have this. Joseph has droughts or famine and Moses has plagues. So natural disasters are used uh, to, to move the story along. Um, wealth. Um, wealth is given by Pharaoh to sustain Jacob on his journey, right? We saw that, one of the things, particularly to, to Benjamin. You remember that in the story of Moses, they plunder the Egyptians. All right. Interesting. Now remember, they take that gold and they turn it into an idol. It's a golden calf, yeah, which is... If only I can think of an application of taking God's blessings and grace and turning it into an idol. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Uh, you know, with like everything. Um, chariots. Remember that Joseph sent chariots to retrieve Jacob. Um, Pharaoh sends chariots to destroy the sons of Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name is Israel. So chariots are sent to retrieve Israel. Chariots are sent to destroy Israel. Uh, the census, um, there were 12 sons that we just read. 
uh, or, or looked at, examined, there are 12 tribes. Um, two others, worship. Jacob stops at a holy place in Beersheba to worship. Moses requests to leave so that they can go to the holy mountain by which they can worship. The parallels. Finally, disaster. God uses famine. I already mentioned this. Um, and then later he'll use plagues. We are supposed to see these parallels. And so the story of Joseph is, is that the, God doesn't abandon us in the pits. He doesn't abandon us in exile. He's the God who enters exile for exaltation. So to the story of Moses is God didn't abandon his people when they were slaves. That's why he'll call them my people, my sons. You remember the story of Moses is all about adoption. Moses, the name means son of, the Egyptian name. That's why you get names like Thut Moses, right? Thut Moses means son of Thut, the God. So Moses just means son of. And so when Moses goes to the burning bush, God uses the language of sonship. My son is in slavery. And Moses has to decide, will he be a son of God, a son of Abraham, or will he be a son of Pharaoh? And he chooses to be a son of Abraham. And all that begins with Joseph, where the sons of Jacob come in. Okay, in terms of practical stuff, real quick, a couple of things. We cannot um, heal from suffering without a robust understanding of God's sovereignty. We don't have time for this. Chapter 45 uh, of, of, of that we read, Joseph is clear, God has been with me the whole time. It is vital when we suffer, we believe that. Even if we don't see it, even if we don't understand it, it is vital we believe it. Eventually, believing will lead to seeing. Often we will not believe until we see. It is vital amid suffering, we believe God is the one who enters into our suffering. That is the incarnation is that Christ puts, adds to that of his nature, humanity and all of his weaknesses and travails. Secondly, uh, God comes down, right? This is the story of Solomon's temple that we talked about. This is unique in world religion that we believe not that we must ascend to the heavens, we're too wicked, but God must descend to the earth. And you read the Bible, that happens all the time. The patriarchs are God coming down with Abraham God meeting with Isaac, God wrestling with Jacob, God going down to Egypt with Joseph, and of course, Jesus. God goes down. Finally, God's plan will not be what we expect it to be, but he will keep his promises. It's, it's, it's amazing that we will map out our lives, and if our lives don't go exactly the way we planned, we blame God. It could be what looks like a detour for you is exactly where God wants us to be. Joseph did not have it on his uh, career goals in high school, I want to be a prisoner of an Egyptian man. I want to be slowed into slavery because that sounds like a great idea. That was never part of the plan. Doesn't mean it wasn't part of God's plan. Doesn't mean God is, is approves of slavery or approves of injustice or any that sort of nonsense. It is to say, despite those things, God was moving. You don't always have to see it. That doesn't mean it's not happening. And it's vital that we get that. Uh, God's plan may not be what we expect it to be. But that doesn't mean he doesn't keep his promises and he's not with his people. Well, Danny, it's good having you back. Did we miss anything? All right.